Tim kind of holds that baby like a football, doesn't he? I was uh, actually it's hard with one. Every when I when we we have kids, so like twenty five years ago when I held babies, that's a lot of work. I uh, sometimes people hand me a baby, that is hard work. So anyway, well done, Tim. Good. So today we're going to continue our sermon series on faith, and we're going to consider Jesus' teaching on believing prayer. It's in Mark chapter. 11. And so if you're able, I would invite you to stand as I read uh, from Mark 11, verses 12 through 26. And uh, this is God's word. Mark 11, 12 through 26. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he, Jesus, became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And they were passing by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. uh, Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. You can be seated. Now, admittedly, uh, this passage leaves us kind of scratching our heads, right? Uh, And it's possible to think the worst about Jesus and the worst about Mark, who wrote this account, probably based on Peter's remembrances. And it's possible to conclude, okay, Jesus got hungry, and he was just like us. He got hungry, and therefore he got grumpy. And so he sees this fig tree, and he's hungry, and he doesn't find figs on it, So he uses his superpowers to curse the fig tree, right? And it's easy to think that, right? But it almost grieves me just to voice that kind of blasphemous view of things because Scripture is always true, and it's always wise even when we don't understand it. And so we should think the best about Scripture, and we should think the best about Jesus. And so we can rest assured that Jesus was not grumpy because he was hungry, right? He went 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and then he resisted temptations more fierce than you and I will ever face. 
So we can rest assured about that, right? And Jesus was, uh, was not out of control. Uh, all of the accounts we have when he was talking with his friends and with his enemies, he was always very measured. He was always under control. Now, we can assume Jesus was at least as smart as Mark. He understood it wasn't fig season, okay? And so if we, we kind of lay all of those thoughts aside, we ask the question, what is, what is happening here in this text? Well, I want us to look at, at this account and talk our way through it, and uh, I think we'll see something very significant for every single one of us. We begin in Mark 11, verse 12, and verse 12 tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he became hungry, and in the distance he spotted a fig tree, and it was, quote, in leaf. And apparently, if a fig tree, the leaves appear at about the same time as the actual figs, or sometimes a little later. So it would have been very reasonable for him to assume, okay, there's a tree in leaf. I'm going to go examine it. There should be figs. There should be green figs. It would be a couple of months before the figs were actually ripe, and they were, the, of course, best to eat when they were ripe. But it was very reasonable for him to expect to find figs. And when Jesus examined the tree, he found only leaves, no figs, not even green figs on this tree. This is what D.A. Carson comments about this fig tree. <clears throat> he says, its leaves advertised that it was bearing, but the advertisement was false. Jesus, unable to satisfy his hunger, saw the opportunity, opportunity of teaching a memorable object lesson and cursed the tree, not because it was not bearing fruit, whether in season or out, but because it made a show of life that promised fruit, yet was bearing none. And so this passage is about hypocrisy. It's a warning about hypocrisy, appearing to be one thing, but in reality being something very different. And Jesus pronouncing judgment on the fig tree emphasizes how essential it is for every single one of us in the room to address hypocrisy, not if we see it, but when we see it in our lives, and how essential it is for us as a church and for the body of Christ in general to address hypocrisy. When we appear to be one thing, generally we appear to have this piety, this righteousness, whereas internally something very different is often going on. As an aside, the Gospels only record uh, one other example of Jesus destroying an object, uh, do you remember what it was? When Jesus was in Gadara and he cast the, the legion of demons out of the, the two men, he put, cast them into the swine and they ran down the hill and they drowned in the Sea of Galilee. So it's very unusual for Jesus to destroy something. He never destroyed humans, uh, but it's very unusual, but it's not out of character for Jesus to curse a fig tree. Before explaining the significance of, of that act, Mark gives an account of Jesus cleansing the temple. And this is not an irrelevant rabbit trail. Uh, actually, the temple was analogous to the, fig, the, the fruitless fig tree. When Jesus approached the temple grounds, uh, he would have come to the court of the Gentiles, and the court of Gentiles surrounded the entire temple. And what he expected to find was the, the court of the Gentiles populated by Gentiles, non-Jewish people worshiping the God of Israel. And in that way, they would, would fulfill part of their mission to be a light to the nations. That's what he should have found. But when he approached, 
He didn't find Gentiles. He found merchandise. He found money changers. He found the chaos. Uh, the Gentiles were crowded out. There was no way that they could come close and draw near to the God of Israel. Now, uh, merchants and money changers, those, those were valid activities and valid occupations. Jews traveling long distances to Jerusalem, uh, they needed to buy animals for the sacrifice. They needed to exchange foreign currency to the local currency so they could uh, pay the temple tax. But that didn't need to happen in the court of the Gentiles. That could have happened somewhere else. But Jesus found, he came to the he came to the. Uh, uh, the temple, and there, there was this external piety, but instead of founding, finding Gentiles, he finds this chaos. And so in an action analogous to cursing the fig tree, Jesus cleans house by overturning tables and driving merchants and money changers out of the temple. And he explains in verse 17 there, he explains his actions by quoting from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And so once again, it was false advertising. It appeared to have this piety, uh, but, but uh, it failed to fulfill its mission. And so he addressed another case of false advertising. And keep that in mind as we read Jesus' reaction when they noticed the fig tree was, was withered. And he teaches on believing prayer. And that's really the key for us uh, avoiding hypocrisy, not just appearing to be righteous, but actually having uh, a true righteousness that produces fruit for eternity. It's based largely on believing prayer. Look at verse 20. It says, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter, always quick to speak, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And so anybody can destroy a fig tree. You can chop it down you, with, with an axe. You can cut it with a saw. But Jesus had spoken. He had made this pronouncement on the fig tree. They came back by and Peter noticed, Jesus, it's withered. And Jesus, in response, he doesn't explain how it happened. He doesn't talk about the fig tree at all. As a matter of fact, he answers by teaching about faith. And he's indicating the necessity of faith if we want to avoid having the appearance of piety without its fruit. Verse 22, Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. It's a very simple statement to the disciples. And this is a command, have faith in God. And by giving that command, it presupposes that we all have a certain amount of control. We don't muscle it. We don't produce faith. But we have a certain amount of control over whether or not we have faith, whether or not we are people of faith. Uh, having faith is not like catching a cold. It's not just some randomly, sometimes you wake up, wow, I've got faith all of a sudden. Faith is invited into our lives. Faith is cultivated by the Word of God, by hearing the Word of God and by putting it into practice. Because the, the disciples had seen the power of God in the withering of the fig tree and many other ways, they were in a great place to have faith in God. In verse 23, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. And this mountain is probably a reference uh, to the Mount of Olives 
And the sea that he references is probably the Dead Sea, which could be seen from the Mount of, Mount of Olives on a clear day. Now, it's interesting that Jesus did not say, if you have faith in God, you too will be able to curse fig trees, right? He says, no, have faith in God, and you're going to be able to say, not to a fig tree, but to a mountain, this mountain, be taken up and be cast into the sea. I think Jesus is saying, when you think about having faith in God, don't think small, don't think in terms of fig tree, think in terms of mountains. And in the Old Testament, mountains were immovable. Uh, mountains were insurmountable difficulties that people faced. And so using hyperbole, Jesus is saying that faith moves the hand of God to do things that nobody else can possibly do. Faith moves the hand of God in ways that nothing else does. He expresses himself negatively. He says he does not doubt in his heart and then positively, but believes that what he says is going to happen. And so faith is confidence in God. It's God, faith, confidence in God's character, confident that God has all authority. Uh, if we have faith, we saw this in, in uh, when we looked at, at Peter walking on the water, faith means believing yeah, you've got to, Jesus has authority over everything. And that's what he said. All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. We have faith. We're confident in that. And faith is most, most commonly expressed in prayer. It's most commonly expressed by asking God to act. And that's what's being illustrated here, as will become clear uh, in the next verse. A few weeks ago, we noted that, that doubt is not a virtue. In our culture, sometimes doubt is elevated to the place of a, a virtue. But in the, the Bible, uh, doubt is something that followers of Christ are to move past on the way to faith. And doubt is not condemned. Uh, we're to be merciful toward those who doubt. Uh, but, but we're to move past doubt to a place of faith. In James 1, we're told that when we ask for wisdom, we should ask without any doubting. The one who doubts is double-minded. He says, that's not really faith. Yeah, I believe God can do what I'm asking. He can give me wisdom. Yeah, or maybe not. He's saying that's not really faith. And so here in Mark 11, Jesus is, is advocating the type of faith that isn't double-minded, a type of faith that believes that God will grant what has been asked. Look at verse 24. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. And so Jesus talks about prayer in kind of this way that makes us uncomfortable sometimes, right? And we probably should say what it doesn't mean. And I know you know this, but it's not giving us a blank check. He's not saying whatever selfish desire you have, as long as you can verbalize it and believe that it's going to happen, Jesus will give it to you. No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, what, what Jesus teaches here needs to be seen in the larger context of what the Bible teaches about prayer. We pray according to the will of God. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name in a way that's compatible with the character and the person of Jesus. And it needs to be seen in light of the, the, the uh, uh, immediate context of fruitfulness. And in the New Testament, fruitfulness uh, involves personal character, and fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience. But perhaps... Primarily, fruitfulness involves fruitfulness in witness and in extending the kingdom. And Jesus taught this, that this is the type of fruitfulness we should have when we pray, when we follow him. In John 14, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, 
he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then again, this, this makes us a little uncomfortable to hear it, but he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so there's a tension here, right? There's a tension because on the one hand, Jesus says, pray these faith-filled prayers, pray these bold prayers. And if you ask in my name, I will do it. But the tension comes because on the other, other hand, sometimes we see dramatic answers to prayer, but sometimes we pray for healing and we don't see it. We pray for deliverance from some issue in our lives. We pray for somebody we love and we don't see it come into, into, into being. Or we pray for somebody that we love to come to faith in Christ. Some of you have prayed for years and years for another person, and their heart seems unmoved. And so we ask in Jesus' name, we ask believing, and yet it doesn't happen. And when that's the case, it's not always the case, I don't want to paint the wrong picture, but when that's the case, it seems like we're tempted to one of two extremes. On one hand, we're tempted to kind of give up and we're tempted to kind of qualify to death what Jesus teaches about prayer, uh, where we, we basically deny what we just read. We kind of deny, we say, Jesus isn't really saying that if you pray according to my will and you, you believe that you've received it, it will be granted to you. And so on the one hand, we can deny the scripture. But on the other hand, and I know you've, you've probably run into people who have, have, have basically weaponized the scriptures and they take these scriptures that teach about prayer and they say, well, the reason why you haven't received the, the answer to prayer that, that you're, the prayer you're praying is because you don't have enough faith or you're not obedient enough or you don't understand the will of God. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, that there's a, an element of truth there. Sometimes uh, prayer is hindered by unbelief. It's hindered because we're not praying according to the will of God. It's hindered by our disobedience. Th those things are true. But we need to be very careful about making these types of pronouncements, especially pronouncements in the lives of other people. The book of Job, the lament Psalms, they should all clue us into the fact that there is more going on in the seen and the unseen realm than we understand. And we, so we should be, be very careful about those types of pronouncements. And so it's my conviction that we should live with this tension. This is a tension to be lived with. This is not a problem to be solved. And so I think we should take Jesus at his word and we should pray these, these big, bold, faith-filled prayer. We pray according to the will of God as fully as we know it and we expect God to come through. That's the default. God said, pray, ask, and you will receive. That's the default. But if we don't receive exactly what we've asked, we don't give up. We don't curse God. We, we keep studying. We keep trying to discern the will of God and we keep praying. And this attitude is embodied in, in Daniel 3. You got these great guys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? These three young men in Babylon, and they're about to be thrown into this fiery furnace, okay? No way they could ever survive it. But this is what they said. This is in Daniel 3, 17 and 18. They were talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He had set, set up this large golden statue and they refused to bow down and worship it. And so that's why they were being thrown into the furnace. But they said this, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. 
and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love it. Here's these three young men. They were absolutely convinced. Not only is God able to deliver us, God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow down and worship your gods. That's the type of faith I think that, that is demanded by Jesus in the Gospels and in this world. Back in Mark 11, verses 25 and 26, kind of round out Jesus' teaching on prayer. He talks about the centrality of forgiveness. And when you forgive somebody, you're basically saying to that person, yes, you've offended me, you, you have, have sinned against me, but I'm never going to make you pay for it. And Jesus, Jesus teaches Christians above all people should do that. Why? Because God has said that to us. You have offended me, you have sinned against me, but I'm never going to make you pay for it because Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sin. And so whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Forgiveness is the unmistakable hallmark of the believer, of the follower of Jesus Christ. And so, cursing the fig tree, cleansing the temple, they reflected the fact that Jesus is not interested in a show, okay? He's not interested in merely external righteousness. Jesus is building a kingdom, and he wants fruit for eternity. And so, what's our response? This way, I would summarize this passage. Through believing prayer, we avoid hypocrisy, and we produce the fruit that Jesus desires. And so this passage clearly is a warning against hypocrisy. You and I can have the appearance of godliness without experiencing the power of God. We can be like the fig tree that has this, this appearance of fruitfulness, but upon closer examination, we're not experiencing fruit. We can be like the, the court of the Gentiles, and this is notorious for churches. We can be busy. We can have all this chaos of activity, kind of God-sanctioned activity going on, and yet fail to fulfill our mission. We are to be a light to the nations. We are to represent Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at the church. Look at God's people. That's hypocrisy when we don't exhibit that. And so what do we do when we, when we notice hypocrisy in ourselves individually or as a church or as the body of Christ? Well, we repent, okay? We don't condemn ourselves. We don't give up. We repent. Hypocrisy is a very normal thing. We try to minimize it. We repent. We admit it. And then the other thing we do, this passage is a challenge to be people of faith, the type of faith that actually fuels believing prayer. I want to give two quick illustrations of how we can pursue believing prayer. One's more individual and the other is more corporate. On an individual level, uh, many people, probably some of you in this room, uh, have found great benefit in praying through the Lord's Prayer, not just mindlessly reciting it, but using the Lord's Prayer as kind of a template and taking the categories that are listed in the Lord's Prayer and in each category, praying these, these faith-filled prayers and filling it out and believing God to, to answer the things and give us the things that we're praying. 
And so, for example, in, in uh, Matthew 6, 9, Jesus said, pray in this way. This is one of the very few times Jesus said, pray this, this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we begin by adoration. Adoration prepares us to, to have faith because it reminds us of the character of God. We've seen it in the Gospels this summer that the people that had great faith were the people that understood uh, who Jesus is. They understood his character, his authority. They understood his identity. And so when we rehearse who God is, it sets us up to be people who can pray believing prayers. We remember God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. We remember Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so we, we begin with adoration. Now we're ready to pray. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so fill this out. Again, I don't need to tell you exactly how to pray this, but where do you want to see God's kingdom come? How do you want to see his kingdom extended in your world and in your life? How do you need to see uh, God's will be done, not only uh, in heaven, but on earth as it is in heaven? Uh, what, where do you need to see God move mountains in your life or in the lives of the people that you hold dear? Paul wrote that we should be zealous for good works. Uh, we're supposed to do the will of God. We're supposed to know the will of God. But sometimes the thing that gets crowded out is praying according to the will of God. What if we, we pray prayers of faith for the will of God to be accomplished in our lives? If we, if we neglect prayer, we end up with this form of godliness without its power. The power of God flows from believing prayer power of God flows from believing prayer. Verses 12 and 13, Jesus tells us to pray about forgiveness, pray about temptation, pray about deliverance from evil. In these areas of our lives, we need the power of God that flows from believing prayer. And so I would just invite you, would you make the month of August kind of a workshop? Uh, join me. I, I've purpose in my heart every day to pray through the Lord's Prayer at least once a day and fill it out and pray faith-filled prayers. Think in terms of mountains, not just in terms of fig trees. And so I would invite you, pray along with me. See what, what God does. Let God teach us to pray as we pray. And so this is, this is something we learn. We learn from experience. We learn from the word. We learn in community. And that leads us to corporate prayer. And this is, this is often a kind of a neglected uh, aspect of prayer. You may remember a year ago, there were, there were numerous pastors from the community. We came together and we, we have pulled together an effort that we're calling the MHK prayer movement. And uh, we have decided that beginning this fall, we're going to hold a series of citywide prayer meetings. And we're actually going to host the first one here at Faith on August the 29th. It's on a Tuesday night at seven o'clock. And uh, you'll, you'll hear more about it in, in coming weeks. But uh, the goal isn't merely to hold prayer gatherings. We're not just trying to fill up rooms with, with prayers. We want to see God move mountains in our city in a, in a way that we've never really seen before. And our, our prayer is going to focus on two basic things. We're going to pray for the church to be revived and for the city to be redeemed. And so we're going to pray it. So far, there's about 10 or 12 churches that are planning to come together. 
And uh, we as the body of Christ in Manhattan, we need to understand what believing prayer is. Uh, we need to be passionate about the things that God is passionate about, the purity of the church, the unity of the church, the compassion of the church, and see God do things in our community, see people reach that are on the margins of, of society, uh, see, see waves of people come to Christ in, in all of our churches. And so you'll be hearing more about this, but I, I would encourage you to not close your heart to the idea of corporate prayer. There's a certain power there that moves the hand of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that we as a people, we as the body of Christ in Manhattan, we as individual followers of Christ, that we would be people of prayer, that we would be people who believe that you're a God who answers God, you're on record over and over and over again. You tell us that you love to answer prayers. You tell us that without faith, we can't please you. You tell us that uh, faith moves your hand. And so make us people of prayer. For those who are here today and might just be uh, resistant to taking another risk and praying in faith, I pray that you would open that person's heart. For those that are disappointed, God, would you give great courage? Would you give great discernment? We pray that together, Father, we might be people of great prayer and we would see you answer. God, we believe that you can. We believe that you will. But God, in those times, even when you, you don't, we don't have to figure it out. We trust you. You are God and you've proven that. And so lead us in the ways of faith. Lead, lead us in the ways of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.